Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 186 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment, I'll be speaking with N.F. Jacques, who is a sound artist based in Montreal, Canada. Jacques creates unique sound-making contraptions and devices, or idiosyncratic systems from small motors and other discarded parts and found objects. And she utilizes contact mics and other tiny amplification setups to produce really fascinating textures and unexpected rhythms. Jacques's creations are used in performances, installations, recordings, and soundtracks for animation films. In addition to her sound work, Jacques also ran Crustasis Tapes, a sound art distribution project where people could send postcards or gifts in exchange for the different sound art cassettes that were available. And more recently, she has moved on to starting Press Precaire, a DIY label focused on releasing obscure and luminous sounds on magnetic tape. I spoke with Anne F. this week about her solo and collaborative sound work, and also about her time running Crustasis Tapes, and about her plans for Press for Care. Throughout the show, you'll also hear selections related to the various topics that we discuss. Before we get into the first interview segment, I'm going to play a few solo pieces from Anne F.'s back catalog. I'm going to start by playing an excerpt from her tape, Dance la Herbe, that came out on the Imminent Frequencies imprint back in 2014.
So for starters, I was wondering if you could provide some background on how you arrived at working with sound in the way that you do, um, just given how unique your approach is. Did, did you come to this through some sort of musical or artistic background, or were you more of a, a, a tinkerer a, as a young child? Uh, no, it actually comes from music, strangely enough. Um, Tinkering came much later. Uh, I've been listening to music avidly and playing music since I was uh, very young and going through classical music training in clarinet when I was a teenager. And I had this huge um, desire to be surrounded by sound and this huge kind of hope of what music could be. <laughs> but at the same time, I hear kind of the satisfaction of what music I was actually listening to and mostly what music I was able to produce. Um, and even when I tried to do things like more free improv, with the classical training, I found myself being totally kind of constricted. So I actually abandoned that altogether and abandoned music for a couple of years. And when I came back to it, um, I was like, okay, I need to find a whole new set of tools and in fact a whole new way of approaching this not be kind of stuck with these uh, preconceived approach. Mm -hmm. can, can you recall any sort of like eureka type moments that you had with, with sound, um, you know, maybe outside of the musical realm, you know, either through just your own experiments that you were doing or, or something that you encountered in your everyday environment? You know, what, what was it that fascinated you about maybe what it was that you were hearing? Well, one clear memory I have is um, recording with, like borrowing my mom's uh, cassette tape recorder and doing a bunch of recordings just around the street. And um, I was totally fascinated by that. Even if the recordings were actually totally horrible that I did, uh, full of noise and, but, in fact, that's, that maybe is what fascinated me, is how going through a microphone and recording device, it, the sound matter becomes, it actually becomes something kind of material mm -hmm. that is quite far from any idea of uh, representing a reality that is pre-existing. So I, that's when I kind of realized that I, I'm totally, I have this kind of obsession with basically the amplified sound or how going through something as simple as a cheap recorder, sound becomes something different and uh, something that feels very tactile and kind of visceral. Right, right. I think, yeah, a lot of people have that moment where you're, you're walking around with an open mic and headphones on, and it's weird how it almost changes the world that you're hearing around you, right? How it's just so uh, magical, <laughs> You know, there's something to Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, you, you create these, now now you create these sort of contraptions or I guess idiosyncratic systems, um, you know, with motors and, and other discarded parts and found objects. And you talked about the amplification or even sometimes contact mics that you use um, to, to produce these really interesting textures and sometimes almost unexpected rhythms and patterns emerge from these things. But I guess, what is your process like uh, in terms of how you compose 
or record something for an eventual release because I think of what you're doing is like purely like ex- experimental music in the purest sense and that you are truly experimenting with sound and its creation. So by the time you press record, you know, do you have sort of a firm handle on how these parts are going to work together and interact, you know, um, before you record something? Or do you like to just sort of improvise with what you're doing to a certain extent? Mm. I I don't think I ever have a firm handle on anything, really. <laughs> um, and <hopefully laughs> not with the contractions I make. Um, in fact, I kind of realized over time that what interests me is developing something and not worrying too much about what sound it's going to make uh, until the very last minute. Meaning, if there's something that interests me in what I'm tinkering with, and it may be a specific kind of movement, a kind of interaction between different objects or a kind of uh, rhythm, Mm -hmm. I kind of pursue that. And then I see kind of from which angle I can amplify that so that it becomes interesting. So what that means is that the kind of sound results, I try to not worry about that until kind of very late in the process, Um, which means that if if I have this idea of like, oh, I need something which sounds like this, I'm not going to be able to make it. It's more... (laughs) playing with things, and then I have to kind of deal with with what comes up. Mm-hmm. When you approach something like a recording that you do, like just in terms of like solo recording, do you do, let's say, like multiple takes of something and pluck out the one that you find to be most interesting? Some, sometimes it's like that. And in fact, often most of the pieces that are in my solo recordings are are just kind of studio sketches, meaning I try to whenever I'm kind of building something or working on something to have some kind of recording set up uh, close by so that when the kind of device or objects lock in something, I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I just press record. And I I just do that, you know, Mm -hmm. all the time. And then once in a while, in fact, I often like to kind of let them sit and I don't identify what's what. And then I... Once in a while, I kind of listen to all these things, and uh, and then some of them kind of strike me as interesting. And a lot of my solo recordings are just like taking some of these basically studio byproducts mm-hmm. um, and treating them like a piece. So I guess that's why I'm not super at ease with calling that a composition process. I mean, I guess it is, but mm-hmm. it's you know it's very not like this kind of intentional, rational. Oh, I will compose this. But it's more, uh, and often by the time I decide to kind of choose one of these uh, snippets of sounds, I don't even quite remember what made it. Yeah, yeah. Or would not be able to to do it again. Yeah. So in some ways, for you, there's just that element of discovery in the process. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All the time. Because if things become too predictable... It's, it's not that interesting for me. You know, like, it, it's, um, I mean, obviously at some point you hope that what you make will interest some people, but mostly, you know, we're pursuing our own kind of fascination with things. So if if I get to a point where I can kind of predict what something's going to do, 
then I change. Yeah. <laughs> I change something <laughs> in the setup. Right. Uh, so I keep being surprised by right. what's happening. Right. Right. Well, I think of like field recordings or or the sort of music concrete approach as becoming rather ubiquitous in, in what often gets filed under sound art nowadays. Uh, you know, and I, I'm using that term very broadly here. But, you know, for you, do you, do you find it more satisfying? And I, and I know you alluded to this before, but, but to have a, like, direct visual and, and tactile engagement with the sound-making process along the lines of, like playing an instrument to to in a certain extent, rather than just taking say uh, field recordings and processing them, you know, through a mixer or through a laptop or what have you. Absolutely. I mean, and and it's more interesting in terms of basically how I want to spend my days. Um, it's not. I mean, not necessarily as as what makes the most interesting sound. Some people make absolutely fascinating things with all these things, all these tools that I don't use, but. For me, and I mean, I guess I'm a sound artist or that's how I define myself because we have to put ourselves in some sort of classification. Mm -hmm. But a lot of my time is spent kind of building weird stuff that doesn't do anything useful. Um, And so it's like focusing on the sound is the best way I can kind of justify this fascination I have with... uh, making kind of little systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, and and the, the sound aspect is one way of kind of approaching them or looking at them. Uh, but then they have this whole other life where, you know, they can just in forever and <laughs> do things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, going back, I had asked you about your background with that. And where did you get the idea of, of starting to work with, these little motors and, and objects and trinkets. I mean, where did that, I mean, you mentioned the, the tape recorder and hearing things amplified, but where does this other piece come in of, of working with these, uh, like I said, motors, uh, trinkets, objects, discarded things? Wh- when did you start experimenting with those items? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It, it kind of took a while in that I, so when I, kind of was clear in my head that I, I didn't want to use instruments and I also didn't want to use a computer and that I wanted to make something live and that I would uh, kind of be directly involved with it. I, for many years, I, th- I started playing with objects, like manipulating objects, amplified with contact mics, uh, and so on. I was for a while in a duo called Mini Block with a friend of mine, do a lot of that. And... Um, so that's, that's when I kind of developed being very interested in, in the kind of resonance or non-resonance of, of different objects and, and the way of making them sound in different ways. But at some point, I got kind of bored with the kind of how excessively performative it is or like how you, know, you need to kind of constantly do things to the object. I kind of wanted to hear more what these things could do, basically kind of hear less of myself and hear more of these objects, kind of being able to let go a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, that's when I kind of started using motors. At first, it was more like using um, small reel-to-reel players, but just as a rotating surface and mm-hmm. putting things on them and then adding other 
kind of soft resonator that would come in contact with them. And then over time, you know, that became more and more kind of absurdly weird system with like just motors that uh, put some objects in motion that kind of meet other objects. Um, but so, yeah, it's the desire to basically be the person who maybe put some objects in interaction with each other, but I'm not the sole and I'm not even the main kind of agent in that, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of shutting things up. Um, <laughs> Which means that often, even in performance, I can just kind of sit back and, and let things go, you know? Because yeah. I'm not, I'm certainly not always doing things. Other things are doing their own thing. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, how, like performances, because you, you, you do live performances, but you also do some installation work, too. And I wanted to ask how you kind of approach those differently. Obviously, with installations, you know, you, you have a chance to set up and kind of play with the space itself and people are able to sort of move about and experience sound in that way or in different ways. Is that something that you try to bring in or incorporate into just your standard performances as well? Yes. And in fact, more and more I'm realizing how um, I don't really want to do the kind of standard performance thing where you're behind a table and you're coming from a centralized sound system um, just because it, that doesn't really quite work anymore with the kind of stuff I'm working with. Um, so what I'm actually, like, this is a bit of a ongoing and, and, and as yet unresolved question, which is how to be able to have a bit of that feeling in a performance where sound can be in different places in the room and uh, having things being less centralized, mm-hmm. yet, you know, knowing the actual context, most performances, mostly most performances where I play, where the context in which I play that I totally love to play, which is like a tiny venue where you don't have that much time to set up or to sound check. So how to make something that is both uh, light and easy to, you know, carryable and not too long to set up yet that is not that kind of frontal um, system so that people can have an experience of different little active uh, devices in a room mm-hmm. that are all doing their sound and ideally are not yeah, all coming from the same sound system. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's play some um, music here, or uh, some of your recent releases. In fact, probably your two most recent solo releases um, one is called, and again, I may need some assistance here with pronunciation, but I believe it's Pujeri, uh out on Wind Measure Recordings. And then you have another new one called Crab Shapedness. And, and I was just going to ask, I have to look back, were both of these recorded within the last year, year and a half during this time of lockdown, or did some of this come before that? Crab Shapedness is very recent. It's been recorded last winter. Um, the pieces from Poudrerie are a bit, are actually more, they're older. Uh, it's stuff from 2018, 2019, uh, kind of studio sketches, as I was saying. And it just took a while to appear for various reasons. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, to get us going here, we're going to play the piece called Gracil from the release Poudrerie. Thank you. 
been involved in as many collaborative releases or, or projects as, as probably your own solo ones over the years. And uh, because much of what you create sound-wise happens um, in real time, you know, it's not this sort of processed sound work. You, what, what you see is what you get, I guess, in terms of how you create sound. Do you find it more satisfying to be playing or, or performing with others, I guess? thinking along the lines of you as almost like a jazz performer <laughs> or in that way where there's some interaction with what you're doing and others sound. I don't know how jazz musicians would feel about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I absolutely love playing with other people. Um, and one of the reasons is that even when I play on my own, I actually try to have these situations where I let myself kind of be disoriented to an extent by the place I'm in, what's happening, what other sounds are present, everything that doesn't happen as as planned uh, or differently. And so playing with another person is, is adding that other layer, right, of uh, having another active force that is not your own, that you kind of have to deal with and interact with. And I find that that kind of pushes me in, in, in more interesting places. Um, also, I must say, clearly, it's just one of the best human experiences ever. Like often the people that I work with end up being some of my closest friends, I guess, because also what we do is so kind of strange and interest such a subsection of humanity that then finding another person that is equally as upset with it is, is a very <laughs> it's a very interesting experience right and, yeah. and like getting to kind of do something together in real time it's uh yeah that's one of the things that uh it just never never gets old yeah yeah and you've answered this to a certain extent but i'll just kind of follow up with 
you know, with some of your more frequent collaborators, I'm thinking of a person like Tim Olive or Ryoko Akamo, who you've done, you know, a few different releases and done performances with. Do you, do you approach these collaboration, uh, collaborations more as, and again, I'm kind of throwing out that term here, but more as like an improviser where, again, you're responding to and building off of this? Or is there more structure to what you do when you're working with these people who you've worked with kind of repeatedly over the years? It's actually quite different uh, with these two collaborations. And that's also something interesting. Like all my collaborations don't follow the same kind of pattern. Uh, with Tim, it's very much uh, improvising kind of setup. We both show up with our kind of setup and we, we improvise, we mm-hmm. play together. Um, with Ryoko, it's quite different in that uh, we both have an installation practice. And so when we, even when we perform together, it's always kind of in the middle of some kind of chaos installation, a mess of objects. We don't do kind of table installation, uh, table mm. performance for right. a sound system. And also with Ryoko, we are kind of in constant communication, meaning that at this point, even what I develop in installation, if it, even the parts that are not necessarily uh, oriented to do a project with her, uh, there's a lot of her influence in it and back and forth. We kind of share ideas and mm-hmm. kind of discuss technical things and ideas. So I kind of like that also, that possibility of collaboration not necessarily just happening in the venue or at the moment of doing an actual recording, but it can also be a kind of ongoing process of sharing all kinds of aspects of, of doing the work. Mm-hmm. Well, based on your latest collaboration, the most recent thing is uh, Bardo Tadal that, uh, from South America, um, where, where you each mix and add sounds over the other's recordings. On, and so he, he has a side and you have a side and you kind of add in kind of what you do to their work. And I was wondering if this, this collaboration came about through the pandemic time period and you were like looking for new ways to work with and collaborate with others um, for, for a release like this. Yeah, well, it, the way it happened is more, um, I've been asking, I've been kind of in contact with Pablo for a couple of years, and uh, I've been asking him to release something on my label, even before the new label existed. And um, at some point I was harassing him about that once again, and he said, yeah, but why don't we do something together? So then I was kind of stuck having to do something uh, in order to be able to have this amazing stuff. Um, and so we, we tried that, the kind of responding to files sent back and forth. I mean, yes, as you say, it, it did happen during the pandemic. Where it seemed that we all had uh, both more time and more need to do such things. Um, that was a really interesting collaboration for me and that, again, it's another one where even the cover, we kind of designed it together by back and forth. So it's one of these people that I've never met in person, but I feel that we actually know each other quite well at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, was was that lockdown period or pandemic period, was that a productive time for you creatively? I mean, were you able to explore more things, maybe sound-wise, or even just take on other hobbies that maybe you hadn't done before? 
during that period, or even maybe it's, maybe it's still going on. It feels like this is never ending, but was that a, a productive time for you? I, I'm, I don't think I would say productive in that I have that clear, like my grumpiness made me feel clearly like I will not be productive, like as a clear kind of <laughs> refusal, uh, you know, like I will not produce like 50 recordings and like, no, this is not what's happening. Um, but I feel like probably, yes, despite myself, I, that ended up, uh, pushing me into some interesting corners. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them I think is, it really made me kind of reconsider and, uh, kind of look at what I'm working with in terms of, uh, when we had contraptions, but I feel like for a couple of years now, I've been developing this, these things and, I've been feeling for a while a kind of need to shift things around and try like quite radically new things. Uh, but then when, you know, you have performances coming or like some kind of public presentation, it's kind of hard to put yourself in a situation where you absolutely don't know at all what you're doing. Uh, but I have that space right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm really trying to kind of explore other directions. I have no idea where it's going to lead. Um, so that, that feels quite uneasy at times, but, um, it's interesting. I, I have a friend of mine, a sound performer, who did a little show in the party the other day and just had such an amazing, simple, direct, uh, setup he was playing with. And he said, after this pandemic, I feel like it would be almost indecent to just keep doing things as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he really kind of expressed uh, something I was feeling. So, yeah, that's a bit where I'm at around that. <laughs> so you you might come out of this as a, a legitimate jazz player then. <laughs> no. Break that clarinet out, know. right? <laughs> you know, like, never say no, right? Right. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I saw that you are involved in a newly formed international group called, I think it's just, is it AHOP is the name of it? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and you had your first release come out recently on the, the Italian label Super Pang. And I was kind of curious how this group came together because it's quite a, a large group that's involved in this. And it looks like some of this work was commissioned for the Audiographed Festival. So I was just wondering as what's presented on the release, basically all that you produced for that festival, or did this kind of extend beyond that? No, it absolutely extends beyond that and, and already has. Um, yeah, so in fact, um, what I was saying before, not quite true in that absolutely amazing thing happened <laughs> during the pandemic, one of which being that that group. Mm-hmm. Um, it was is a project uh, it was formed by Ryoko Akama. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was her idea, everything about it. She wanted a nine-person band um, doing a lot of uh, sound work based on like very kind of loose composition ideas that would be made by every member of the group. Anyway, she had that whole kind of vision. Uh, she called me to talk about it, and I was like, yeah, but that's your, that's your thing. I'm a disaster with emails and organization. <laughs> um but it's it's been really interesting. So in fact, the audiograph thing came after, meaning the 
we already had started working and then um, as as a group, then Audiograph came up. So we did three uh, video pieces and then the audio of these three pieces have been released on Superfine. Uh, since then, we already did two other pieces uh, for Radio Tsunami, which is the radio version of uh, Tsunami Festival in Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're now working on new pieces for uh, Rome Festival in Huddersfield. Oh, great. So, yeah, very. So it, it sounds like this is something that has, I, for lack of a better word, has some legs to it. There's some longevity like you enjoy the process of working together that it's going to keep going. Yeah, it's, it's been a very nice surprise because really at first when Hilko told me about this, it was like nine persons working together via email on something that sounds like a disaster. Like yeah. I, I was uh, absolutely pessimistic about that, but um, somehow I guess, I don't know, due to the fact that these are really amazing people in that group and uh, maybe the pandemic, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's just really working and every piece is very different from the other one. So it's, I keep being absolutely surprised by this project, but it's uh it's fun. You said that Ryoko yeah, sort of sort of headed that up. I mean, are is it is she sort of the centralized figure where she's taking a lot of the the submissions and and mixing this stuff, or is this a full on group project where this is kind of fluid and who's taking on and mixing these pieces together? No, it quickly became quite horizontal, which is I think why it's also working so well, uh, meaning the scores are coming from different people all the time. And every time the person is kind of proposing a score, which is basically a simple set of directions, is also the person who's like going to do the mix and is okay. taking in charge, you know, everything, the duration. So, so I guess that's also why it, it feels interesting is that it's not always the same people that kind of uh, take the lead on different projects, like the whole Radio Tsunami thing came along through Suzueri, which is the one who really kind of pushed through with that. So that that horizontality is also like how I, I want to work in in projects like that. And uh, surprising to see it work with like nine people, but it's actually possible. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's play uh, a track from the first album. This is a piece called A Rhythm and Portrait Song.
were doing a, a project called Crustasis Tapes uh, for several years, which I thought was just a really cool idea. You know, you weren't operating it as a typical label per se, where people paid for a release and you sent it to them, but rather it was a, a sound art distribution project where people could send you a gift or a postcard and, and then receive one of the tapes. And by the way, I, I still owe you something for the tapes that you sent me. So that's coming your way. Um, but I was wondering, you know, what, what was the idea for this project? Was, was it, was it more in the spirit of like how Fluxus in the whole mail art movement was rather than trying it for it to be a label? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, I was obsessed with the idea of, uh, oh, I love receiving mail. Uh, the idea of kind of trying to see if it was possible to do something and do something in a sustained way that kind of operated outside of money exchange. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and in doing that, kind of playing with a lot of ideas around what the label is, you know, like including like a limited edition. Uh, I always said uh, releases are infinite editions in that, which doesn't mean that it's so many, but like as long as somebody would want a copy, I would, I would make it. Right. Um, so kind of, kind of playing with that, it, it started as a, at a point where a lot of people around me were very disillusioned with the whole label, the whole notion of like re even just releasing stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and saying, oh, nobody wants to buy things anymore. And I was like, well, maybe the only problem is that you're trying to sell it. <laughs> and if we get rid of that, uh, let's see what happens, you know? Um, because it feels, to receive something by the mail, something sometimes as simple as a postcard saying, I would like a copy of this, hello. It feels like a kind of personal relationship with somebody that kind of cares about something that you're involved in. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then I received a bunch of absolutely strange and absurd things. And, <laughs> and that was a, a big pleasure in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was, just, I was going to ask what, what was the most interesting, I mean, if you, if you can share, I should say, what is the most interesting thing you received through that project in the mail? I received a very heavy uh, plaster cast of a cassette tape. Um, a plastic eagle, uh, a lot of chocolate, mm, drawings, seeds, um, what else? Yeah, so many things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, are you, do you have a desire to keep that going as an active project or, or is it just with, you know, international shipping rates and all these things? Has it just gotten too difficult to maintain it or are you just ready to move on from that? Yeah, the project is actually officially closed in that I still have some copies of some of the releases that, you know, if people send me a nice something, uh, I can mail them some copies, but it's, there's not going to be any, any more releases around that project. Uh, shipping, obviously, is a huge one. Like, it was ridiculously expensive at some point. And also, uh, I feel like the project kind of has run its course, you yeah. know, like it was it's been a really nice thing. And, uh, and at some point I had a kind of pure feeling of like, okay, I, I kind of, I kind of completed that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you recently started up, uh, I guess what you would call a, a proper label um, with Press Precarious, <laughs> or precari- I'll say the English, Precarious Press, um, which, which yeah. carries over kind of the general look and feel of that previous project. You know, was this an effort on your part, I guess, and you're already kind of alluding to that, but maybe to turn the page and then maybe to have a more visible, even more typical label operation for your work and and other artists whose work that you wanted to release? Yeah, in fact, um, I mean, I wasn't planning at all to release any of my work on that label. It just happened because uh, of that collaboration with with Pablo. But I kind of realized along the lines that uh, with respect to tape, I could, the project was so absurd. Like I, I could really only ask people that I personally knew mm-hmm. to release on it because otherwise it just doesn't really make any sense as, as even an offer, yeah. uh, you know? So, and then I, I just was really interested in, in, in releasing some people, um, to me that really deserve more exposure. And I mean, already the exposure I offer is really minimal you know, my ineptitude with like promotion and social media and such things. But I mean, already just having a, a label where one person could actually buy a tape if they wanted to, I thought maybe was a good direction to go to. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned like social media stuff and you've kind of steered clear of all that um, in terms of just label operations, even your own uh, solo work. You just have your main website and you don't deal with all that social media. Is that, I mean, I get it. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> is that something that you per- prefer just to not engage with when it comes to kind of that, yeah, the promotional aspects of doing this type of music? Yeah, I I have a lot of problems with the idea that everything, every project, every person should kind of be a product that has to be promoted. <laughs> I, it, it seems usually problematic for me, and um, I like to see if there's a way to live my life uh, not along these lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, you know, it also sounds like, if I'm saying it like that, it sounds like a big political claim. I mean, it, it's also coming from absolute incompetence. Uh, I'm, I'm not good at that. I barely answer my email. So, you know, if I was to add any social media on that, it would just be a, a disaster. Um, but yeah, it's like something that I, when it's like when the whole social media thing started to happen, at first they were promoting it as a way to kind of get back in touch with your high school friends. And I was like, well, that sounds like a nightmare. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do that. And then as years went on, I was like, oh, I guess I'm missing that boat. And I'm just kept being happy to have missed that boat. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at. Stay, you know what? Yeah, uh, keep it sailing in that direction. You're doing that's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think too. Sometimes I, I would love to just scrap it and just whoever finds it finds it. That makes it more meaningful. You know, like if if people are curious and looking and they discover some of it, like that makes it kind of special. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things with with uh, Christophe Tate that I was constantly totally surprised. I would receive something by the mail. I was like, how the hell this person have learned about this? Right. 
I mean, I guess that was my project, but how did that work? Mm-hmm. And in most of the cases, I would never know. Right. So it's, that was kind of fun. <laughs> right. The mystery is wonderful. Right. <laughs> Well, let's talk about just your your two most release uh, most recent uh, releases that you had come out. We, we we briefly talked about the Bardo Tadal one that you did that sort of split or collaborative release. Um, so there's that one, but also you have this new project or new release called Radio Eclipse that features a couple of artists. But maybe I'll let you kind of explain the background on this because this comes out of uh, a a unique. Uh, programming that was done in South America. Yeah, so that release is actually coming from the the programming of uh, so many festivals that I was mentioning earlier. Many festival is the festival that's been running in uh, San Valparaiso, Chile for several years. Um, amazing festival featuring mostly, not uniquely, but mostly uh, Latin American artists. Mm-hmm. And well, because of the pandemic this year, they made it as a, a radio festival, and during which we had many special programming, but one of which was a 24-hour program centered around the total solar eclipse that happened last December in the south, uh, the southern hemisphere. And I, well, I already wanted to do a collaboration with Tsunami, but that specific programming really hit me because for them doing a a program around Eclipse uh, ended, up, ended up being a way to talk about many different things, uh, including pre-European astronomy, given that the Eclipse uh, occurred mostly over uh, Mapuche territory, which is First Nation um, people in Chile. And so I was just so fascinated by the way in which through sound art, you can actually touch so many uh, different topics. Um, so yeah, so I, I proposed to them to do a collaboration, and then we kind of chose uh, two two pieces from that uh, programming that mm-hmm. uh, we thought would actually make sense to be released yeah, yeah. on a physical format. Yeah, and we're going to play uh, one of those pieces from Nicole LaHillier. Um, in this set of music here. We'll start off with the Bardo Todal uh, piece uh, with his side. And uh, I guess before we, we jump into this last block of music, I thought I would ask you, you know, what what are some of your uh, forthcoming plans in, in terms of uh, with the label and maybe even just for yourself in terms of performances or, or recordings? For uh, Presse Precaire, we have a couple of things coming up, uh, one of which was, will be a solo release by Elizabeth Miller, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps best known as uh, one half of the new Sound of the Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, also probable releases with Isisha uh, Shaknes and uh, Yonago Tadashi. Uh, and for me, I recently completed a release uh, with Claire Rouzé, the first collaboration. That was a very, very exciting thing uh, for me to do. And uh, that's going to be released on Claire's label, Mended Dreams, uh, probably this fall. Okay. Otherwise, in terms of, yeah, in terms of performances, uh, it's very hard to say within <laughs> the current situation. So I think I'm going to have to uh, organize 
playing little shows and parks and basements and yeah, such yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> keep, keep it in your area, right? You probably won't be traveling internationally too much quite yet. No. Yeah. Well, let's jump into this uh, Bordeaux Tudal side here, and and thanks so much uh, for taking the time and for uh, sticking with it uh, through these technical glitches that we've had. (laughs) Thank you.
And that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I want to thank Anne F. once again for taking the time to speak with me this week. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this show, you can go over to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played, where you can purchase either physical or digital copies in most cases. You can also keep up with some of Anne F.'s latest activity and news about her work, by checking out her website at Anne, that's A-N-N-E hyphen F-F-F dot Tumblr dot com. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at FFFreakout at Hotmail.com. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening.